Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. In the program this week, the All Blacks play the last match of their Grand Slam Tour in Wales on Sunday morning. A strong field's been confirmed for the ASB Classic Women's Tennis Tournament and we'll hear from the only New Zealander to make the final in Auckland. We'll also be talking to a former New Zealand pace bowler about his plans after his county contract was cut short and to a man who's marked a cricket double century with a difference, reaching his milestone as a scorer. We'll look back at the netball season and talk to Valerie Adams' manager about her pending change of coach. Rugby first though, and the All Blacks will wear white armbands on Sunday morning in memory of the 29 men who died in the Pike River mine explosion. News of Wednesday's second explosion hit the team hard, especially the New Zealand Rugby Union president. John Sturgeon is a West Coaster and a former coal miner with 38 years in the industry. He says the players and coaches asked the Welsh Rugby Union for a minute's silence at the Millennium Stadium, although he was a little reluctant to raise the matter with head coach Graham Henry. As I mentioned to Graham this morning, that's very nice, but we're here to do a job and I didn't want to suggest that if it was going to interrupt the team preparation because it's a big day for us, it's the end of a long tour and we've got to try and get this grand slam for not only the players but for the management and, and New Zealand really. And if we can click a grand slam, that'll be just good for the coasters as well. John Sturgeon says coal miners' camaraderie is unbelievable, and that's one reason he stayed as long as he did. This is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. There'll be two former world number ones in the field for the ASB Classic Women's Tennis Tournament in Auckland with Dinara Safina's confirmation. The Russian's unseated now and ranked 63rd, but she's won 12 WTA titles and she joins already confirmed countrywoman, the top seed Maria Sharapova, the third seed Svetlana Kuznetsova and the 2009 finalist and ninth seed Yelena Vesnina. Sharapova's a former Wimbledon champion who's been ranked number one and Kuznetsova's been as high as two. And although Sharapova's the only top 20 player, the tournament's director, Richard Palmer, says it's still a top field and they've never had two former world number ones. And they're capable of going up into the top echelons again. You've got a former world number two and she, you know, she was in the, in the top ten for a long while, Svetlana, and she's just had one or two injury problems. Five Grand Slam titles between them, ten Grand Slam finals between them. We've never ever had those numbers before and, and so there's real class there. But there's intrigue too because Dinara could strike... Maria first round. That's Richard Palmer. The tournament starts on the 4th of January when Belinda Caldwell, the only New Zealand finalist, will be back in the television commentary box. And I asked her what she thinks of the field Richard Palmer's put together. If you look at some of the players coming, they instantly are recognised worldwide, Maria Shavropova, and between several of the players they've won many Grand Slams so to be able to look at players who have obviously been the best in the world at certain times um, makes the field stronger 
than probably it has been in its history. What do you make of, as Richard was saying, the Russians are coming and Dinara Safina being in the mix as well? Well, the Russians have had a fantastic programme over the last, say, 15 or 20 years, and I think it's just coming to fruition. They've got great players, they're very strong internationally, and, and that feeds on itself. So they're great role models for players back home in Russia, and the players just get better and better because they, they feel they can. And so I think it's full credit to the Russians, and I also think they have as a personality, a great tenacity and a great desire to win, which are obviously very important in professional sport. Speaking of importance, how important is it for this tournament to have a player of the, I guess, the star power of Sharapova, if not the uh, the tennis power? She's perhaps not the player she might have been a few years ago, but she's still, in, in terms of popularity, I guess, she'd be right up there, wouldn't she? She's still ranked in the top 20 in the world, which is a phenomenal achievement. And so while she's maybe not in the top five, her ability to play is clear for all to read and to see. And also having someone of true superstar status in sport internationally to come to New Zealand is huge. I, I remember several years ago when I was commentating, Anna Kornikova played, and it was incredible how it lifted the, the commentary and the TV and the audience, and everybody seemed to get such a lift out of a player of that quality and that superstar status and made everybody want to be better at what they did. And I think that the same is for Sharapova, and it's a huge coup for the tournament. But for a traditionalist like myself, she's also incredibly noisy, and they measured the decibels of her uh, shriek at Wimbledon, and it was up there with a 747, I seem to recall. Well, how do you think that will go down with tennis fans in Auckland who tend to be fairly traditional about things being quiet? Well, it's twofold really, isn't it? I think um, tennis fans would be interested to hear how loud she is because if you read about it and you, and you hear that the grunting is very loud, you're sort of interested to hear what it's like and how that affects opponents and, and things like that. And, and secondly, I, I think the audience will enjoy forming their own opinion. I, I personally agree with you. I think it's excessive and I don't think it's necessary in order to hit the ball well. But it's obviously a big part of her game now, and to, to ask her to tone it down or to cut it out of her game would, I imagine, be virtually impossible. So it, it just adds another interest, doesn't it, to, to watching tennis at that level. So I suppose for the likes of me, just shut up and put up with it then. Just get over it and get some earplugs, because I don't... I mean, you know, I remember 20 years ago, Monica Seles started playing and grunting very loudly, and there was a lot of dissension among the players as to whether that was appropriate. Well, nothing changed, nothing happened, and so I think you're right. You need your chainsaw earmuffs and bring them, bring them down to the tennis. And the men do it too, of course, don't they? I was watching Roddick and Rafa Nadal yesterday, a lot of grunting going on with them too. They do, but for some reason, I think the women, are, it's more obvious, or whether they... Certainly some of these players who've um, been raised in Boloteri's in America, and he's a great component of, of, of grunting and, and being really expressive when you're hitting the ball. And so coming out of a, an academy like that, the players do tend to grunt because they've been taught to do that, and they've been taught that that helps their game. So, and, and a lot of the women have trained there. So it may be something that the women, it tends to be more obvious in the women, and I'm not too sure why. Getting back to the tournament, who would you see being there on the Saturday? Well, it's very difficult to tell, particularly when the players haven't arrived in Auckland yet. I think the first tournament of any year is a really tricky one, and often you'll get a player who's not necessarily meant to win the tournament may win just because they've prepared better over the summer months leading into the event. And I always feel that the players are a little bit hesitant, a little bit nervous at the early stages in the week where we can see a few upsets. But it would be difficult to look past some of the top players, the Sharapovas and, um, and Safina, for example, It'll be difficult to look past them to get to the latter stages of the week. And I see uh, Marina Rorakovic is here. She's had a pretty bad run with injuries a 
What does she have to do to uh, to get back to where she was a few seasons ago? Well, I think it's just take one step at a time, like everybody. She, I'd imagine that she will get a wild card, given that she's such a draw card in terms of a New Zealand player, and the Auckland public love to watch her play, and, and she served them very well. And really, I think from her point of view, it's take one step at a time, and it's the first tournament of the year for her and for everybody else, and really she just needs to continue along her journey and, and play the best that she can every day. That's Belinda Caldwell, and this is Extra Time. Cricket now, and at the Basin Reserve in Wellington this week, there's been a special presentation, marking Ian Smith's 200th first-class match on the scorebook. Smith, who was born in England and moved to Wellington as a boy, began scoring 47 years ago, and since then he scored 42 of the 51 tests at the Basin, as well as 42 one-day internationals, and now 158 non-international first-class matches. He told me he had a shaky introduction to Wellington in 1959. Three days after we arrived, there was an earthquake and we wondered what the hell it was. (laughs) Uh, So you're obviously well acclimatised now. When you were growing up, did you play cricket? At what point did you decide you wanted to specialise in scoring? I played cricket at Wellington College, a lower team, and I then went to work for Lever Brothers and they had a team uh, playing in one-day competition in the Hutt Valley and after getting a 49 and 36 in the first two games, the next five games I faced six balls. One was a two-ball duck. And so I, one week we had more than 11 players, so I pulled out and ended up going to Kilburnie Park and started scoring there. So that would have been in, what, 1960-something? That something? would have been uh, early 63. Just tell me about how scoring has changed since you first got into it. Is it much more technical now? Well, in those days, all you worried about was time. Uh, The scoring for balls hadn't really been developed, especially in club cricket and even first-class cricket. It was all about minutes. And uh, in those days, there was none of this so many overs in a day or so many in the last hour. Again, it was just based on time. Then... Scoring with balls and minutes came in, and we've now gone into computer scoring, which, you know, is great. If the information that's put in is correct, it makes it a lot easier. Would you prefer the paper or the or the uh, the microchip? Uh, I'm quite happy paper scoring, but I've, I mean, I'm I'm not a computer buff. I, I just know what I have to know. I, I quite enjoy the uh, computer thing. It's probably not quite you know you can do other things while you're scoring i, I mean i keep a, a run uh, well a, a linear scoring thing while i'm using a computer again just in case something goes wrong of the matches that you've scored at the basin is there any particular one that stands out to you as, as the highlight or have there been too many to uh, to list well i I always think of the 77-78 test against England when we beat them for the first time. Any conflicted loyalties there? No, I'm and have been for quite some time. When it comes to New Zealand playing at cricket, then uh, I'm definitely New Zealand. I think with England and Australia that's starting today, I'm most definitely England. But that's about the only loyalty I would have to England now. And in terms of particular performances, you've had your, your Richard Hadleys and your Richard Collinges at the at the uh, 
bowling into and with the wind and so forth. What about batting? Martin Crow, Andrew Jones, and that Sri Lankan test? That would have to be, uh, I think, the highlight where you score a world record partnership. And that Um, was when Martin Crow got uh, 299, wasn't it? 299, and they put on 467 for the third wicket. And that was a pity he didn't quite go on to that 300. Yeah, yeah. And what about opposition teams? Because there's, there's been some great players at the Basin over the years, and it is one of the great grounds to watch the game, isn't it? Dead right. One of the... I always find the bowling highlight... I mean, you mentioned Richard Hadley in his 7th 23, but to me, uh, Courtney Walsh here. Uh, West Enders have got 640 for five, and our guys could get absolutely nothing out of it, and then they rolled us twice fairly quickly... And Walsh, I think, got 13 wickets in the game. You know, it was just unbelievable when you saw how uh, the New Zealand bowlers had been. And what do you make of changes to the game in, in the time that you've been doing it with the the move to uh, you know, one days and now 2020? It, it, do they sit well with you? I've got used to them. I must admit that at the start, I'm still a traditionalist. I still prefer the test matches. But I've got used to them, and I think it's a case that, like a few years ago, one-day cricket was the thing that paid the bills, etc., and now it's 2020, and I think from an economic point of view, it's a necessity. I just hope we don't get too much 2020 at the expense of the other forms. There is, I guess, uh, a danger with three formats of the game of cricket following the example of of rugby and and, and over-egging the custard. The rugby season now is practically 11 months long, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't want to see that with cricket? Oh, no. I I mean, I think it's a case where what they have to do if they want these tournaments like Champions League, IPL uh, and that, I think you've got to give a certain part of the... try and get a certain part of the calendar. I mean, I think it was crazy when New Zealand went to England last time that you had three players who didn't arrive and were playing in a different competition while New Zealand were playing overseas. Any particular players who stand out to you as favourites, not only in terms of their ability to play cricket, but the way they relate to other people off the field? On the field, I've always admired Colin Cowdery. I I think I saw him bat about five times and get 400s. Local players, I've always enjoyed... Nearly all the Wellington players that you get on with, some of the old-timers, the Graham Bilbers, Barry Sinclairs, Richard Collins, those sorts of guys. Modern-day favourite of mine's Richard Jones, basically, because Richard was uh, one of the few guys I scored at. He played for the same club that I was scoring at, but at the end of the day, no matter what game, be it first class or something, Richard would always come and thank the scorers for their efforts during the day, which... Unfortunately, I think there are very few players do. Do you think that's because they have no idea of the amount of concentration that you have to put into it? Because when, as I said to you earlier, when I was called on as a cadet reporter to score a game for the sports editor at the Star, I found it very difficult to do. Yeah, I think in certain cases they take you for granted and when they've got to do it themselves, I think that's when they do realise, hey, it isn't as easy as I thought. That's the veteran cricket scorer Ian Smith, and this is Extra Time, and I'm Murray Williams. Still with cricket and the former New Zealand pace bowler Ian O'Brien says while he wouldn't rule out a return to the Black Caps, he's still hoping for another county contract. 
After retiring to move to England at the end of last season, O'Brien's back in Wellington, where he's been bowling to local players in the nets as he completes rehabilitation from a hamstring injury. The 34-year-old's three-year contract with Middlesex was cut short when the England and Wales Cricket Board refused his request to be reclassified as a domestic player because his wife's English. O'Brien says it'll be hard to get another contract as an overseas player because all counties have wage freezes. In the meantime, he's been dabbling in the movie business and says he may play for Wellington again. But the Black Caps' next series is against Pakistan in January. And although he says he told coach Mark Greatbatch he'd never say never, he's heading back to England in the new year to rejoin his wife. But he told Stephen Hewson playing for the Black Caps again certainly appeals. I'd do anything to play for them again, but that was the decision I made. And, and look, I'm so happy with, with where I'm at at the moment. Yeah, I would have loved to have been able to play for Middlesex, and, but the rest of life is pretty much spot on. So so in terms of missing it massively, would I love to play? Yeah, of course I would. But am I happy where I'm at? Yeah, I am. And, you know, about life fulfilment, so I'm pretty happy. You know, like I, I don't need it, if you know what I mean. You, you mentioned you've been doing some media work. Is that where you see life after cricket? Again, look, it's just one of those never-say-never things and had a really good summer with, with loads of radio work and I loved it. I had really, really good fun and, and if, if you can't play it, you might as well talk about it. And so that's, that's a pretty, pretty decent way to, to maybe, maybe earn a living. Uh, it's not nothing nailed on, obviously, but it was good fun and I enjoyed it and, um, and the, the, the pay was okay, if you like. So, yeah, I'd never say never to, to a job doing that, if, especially if I can't play. Yeah, why wouldn't you want to talk about it? You're adding another string to your bow. You're at the Tony Rick. You're, you're in the, the Tangiwai movie. You're, you're playing Neil Adcock. How did that all come about? Twitter is a wonderful and weird and dangerous and, and interesting and intriguing little world. Yeah, someone put a message out that they were looking for a, a decent bowler that could uh, fill a role. Uh, that got forwarded on to me uh, through Twitter, and so I said I'm back and available. But uh, what happened was I ended up coming back a few days earlier uh, to fit with their schedule. I was always coming back. I was due back tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, but uh, came back Sunday so, so I could do this. Um, small change of schedule, no big, no big deal, but, uh, but something different again. Like you just uh, Another one of those opportunities that, uh, that sort of shows up and it never turns something like this down, never. The starts are a bit earlier though, aren't they? Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a 6.15 of this morning. Although, look, I was doing, some, I was doing um, Sky stuff for the India-New uh, Zealand Test Series and it was 3.15 make-up call in the morning. So, so these starts aren't too bad and I'm not, you know, the old jet lag sleep at the moment. I'm waking up at 3 o'clock wide awake. So, uh, so it's, not, uh, it's not the end of the world turning up down here at 6.15 to, uh, to get some make-up and my hair done. The Tangiwai movie Ian O'Brien was talking about there with Stephen Hewson recalls one of sport's most poignant moments when the New Zealand cricketers were touring South Africa in 1953. On Christmas Eve, the Wellington to Auckland Overnight Express plunged into the flooded Wangahoo River at Tangiwai, killing 151 people, among them the young fast bowler Bob Blair's fiancée, Nerissa Love. By the time the New Zealanders began the first innings of the second test at Johannesburg, a distraught Blair was at the team hotel and wasn't expected to play. That changed when fast bowler Neil Adcock began hitting the New Zealand batsmen so often with bounces that Bert Sutcliffe and Laurie Miller had to retire. After six wickets had fallen, Sutcliffe went out again with his head bandaged and when the ninth fell, the players began to leave the field. That's when Blair silenced the crowd as he emerged from the tunnel, walking to the wicket with Sutcliffe's arm around his shoulder to help the team's best batsman add 33 for the 10th wicket. Stephen Newson also asked Ian O'Brien about his cricketing plans. I've sort of still got a, uh, just rehabbing from an injury that I um, had for a lot of the summer in the UK. I haven't bowled full wheels for about four months, so 
getting back into it now. Uh, I had a pretty good role yesterday uh, at the Basin. They used me as a net bowler and I used them as a uh, way to get fit again, get, uh, get back into it. So nice little relationship there that we can use to each other's advantage. So yeah, a little bit of cricket maybe coming up if I can uh, get happy and, and confident uh, back bowling again because it's a pretty decent injury so just taking my time but making sure I get some cricket in. What was the, the problem injury wise? Medically I tore a bicep femoris, the tendon, a grade 2 tear, uh, which is right up in the in the backside of my left leg. Uh, so hamstring tendon, a decent tear and um, yeah it's taken longer than we expected to, to come right but you're getting there now. On the county scene things were going alright weren't they for you? Yeah I was, um, I was doing okay. I'd had a couple of niggles which I was expecting I guess with the, with the schedule over there. Sort of, uh, We had seven games in, in five weeks almost and um, seven four days and so you sort of you expect the niggle and, and had to uh, walk off a couple of times and not be able to finish innings but again like you sort of expect that and uh, they're just little niggles and, and then yeah had a bit of time off with some tendonitis in, the, in that same tendon came back from that fit strong and first game back 20 overs in the first innings and then getting into my third of the second it just went snap went bang and so yeah that's, that's four months ago uh, so it was going good uh, some good hauls and a good little uh, good game against uh, Gloucestershire, which is the Kiwi, basically the Kiwi first class team in uh, in England. So uh, yeah, had a good run out and playing at Lords uh, every every second game, every home game was um, that's a treat. You, you felt at home at Middlesex? Yeah, loved it, loved it. Really good bunch of guys, had a great time. And yeah, there's not much you can't enjoy about playing uh, at a ground where it's where everything's laid on for you in that regard. It's not a ground where you get lazy, but it's a ground where you can appreciate that that sometimes other grounds aren't quite as grand. And, and no, it's a, it's a good, good bunch of guys. Yeah, unfortunately I can't go back to complete a three-year contract. They have to find a new county, which is which is sad because I was really enjoying my, my time with them. And, and what are the hopes of finding a new county? Yeah, I have to look for a new county as an overseas. I guess that's part of me coming back here and trying to get fit. I was always coming back for a couple of weeks to clear out 15 years of junk out of mum and dad's garage so, so I was always coming back but um, I guess in the, I'll probably end up staying for a little bit longer um, and, and try and get some cricket and again you know to end up being a, quite a decent relationship with, with Wellington you know, I need to get fit and, and they, uh, they can do with a couple of quickies at the moment so I sort of fill a hole if you like. So it's not the end of your time in England? Oh no 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 I'll be back over there and I'll, um, I'm looking for a, for a county as an overseas um, it's not going to be easy because of the economic uh, situation there. A lot, of, a lot of counties have got a bit of a pay freeze on, so hopefully they'll find some money over Christmas. Hopefully Santa's kind to them and uh, they can find some money that hopefully find its way to me in a, in a, in a way of a contract. That's Ian O'Brien talking to Stephen Hewson, and you're listening to Extra Time, a web-only programme with Radio New Zealand Sport, and I'm Murray Williams. Netball now, and despite their dramatic extra-time gold medal win over Australia at the Delhi Commonwealth Games and the Fastnet Ferns retaining their title in Liverpool, the assistant coach, Waimarama Tamanu, refuses to give the Silver Ferns 10 out of 10 for 2010, and she tells Stephen Hewson why. We started planning our assault on Mount Everest towards the end of the 2008, beginning of the 2009 series, and you know Ruth and I were absolutely delighted that it came to fruition the way it did, but... Having said that, it was just by one goal. Um, I think I probably wouldn't say that the quality of the plan was any worse had we not come out with that goal, but I'm delighted that it all worked out. What would your, your mark be for the end of the year for the Silver Ferns and the game at that national level? Look, at the start of the year, if, if someone had said to me we'd have a gold medal and we'd have retained a fast net title with essentially a development team, I would have said that was a 10 out of 10. And, and 
the only reason I'm sitting now, I'd give it a nine, is that I think there are areas that we do need to work on, and also because I'm looking forward to the world champs, because in our planning, our um, program was always a, a two-pronged event, so we've, we've done one part of it, and our focus now is very firmly on finishing this properly. I suppose it highlights the, the fine line between success and what might have been termed failure. Absolutely, and from Norma's point of view, she'll be looking at her program now and, and thinking what needs to change, but... With all due respect, it was a one-goal loss and they had the opportunity to win three times. So it is a fine line and you, I think every team who turned up at the Commonwealth Games did everything they, they possibly thought was, was needed. What about from a Silver Fern perspective looking ahead to, to next year, the, the World Champs? What, what do you look to do? Everyone's got um, the statistical analysis and the video analysis, so we've, we've done that work now, although it will continue during ANZ and, of course, the international programme in England. There are certainly some issues that we need to address, most notably, I guess, our error rate. And we will need to be looking at that quite closely over the next month or so because we don't have the same amount of time. One of the great things we had this year was 55 days with the New Zealand team, and that's pretty rare, really, these days with the ANZ competition and so on. Are players, or have they developed to the the level you want them to? Obviously, you've you've set targets. (laughs) I'm never going to be happy, though. (laughs) Um, However, having said that, um, certainly, I, you know, we've been really pleased with the progress that players have made, particularly over the last 12 months. But we are looking to them to, to take another step forward because the look in the Australians' eyes accepting a silver medal was, was a real warning to us all that they are not going to be happy to do that again. Looking at some of the players that have developed, presumably Maria Tutaya would be one that, that stands out for the year. That was a, a marvellous effort from Maria in that uh, in that last game, and I thought her combination with Irene had really showed some some maturity, particularly through that final and the overtime period. So certainly that was a great effort from Maria. But like all of her fellow Silver Ferns, we'll be looking for everyone to step up. Now, I know as a coach you don't want to single players out, but I'm I'm going to ask you to anyway. That one or two others <laughs> that you feel have certainly come on. Rather than single out any players, I, I was as the defensive coach really impressed by the quality of circle defence. I think they stand head and shoulders above the rest of the world at the moment. Just in terms of their willingness to work together and their ability to think their way through solutions and the variety that we have, the variety of combinations we can put on court. Would it be fair to say they possibly carried the mid-court a little bit this year? You know, it's a team game and they certainly are up to their game. But having said that, I think the question would be, have they um, not been contributing as well as they should have in the past? So, you know, there's always two ways of looking at anything the connection from the midcourt into the circle. That is where we tend to make the biggest number of errors and that is where we will really have to focus some attention in the coming three or four months. What about your enjoyment as a coach? I mean, because this is just sort of the first full year you've had with the Silver Ferns. Oh, very much. And it was uh, my first time with a Commonwealth Games, New Zealand Commonwealth Games team, and I thoroughly enjoyed that experience. I have to um, compliment New Zealand Olympic and Commonwealth Games Committee very highly. They, they ran a great event and certainly, you know, the, the publicity before we went into the village was a little off-putting, but once we got there, I thought they were outstanding. That's the Silver Ferns assistant coach, Waimara Matumanu, talking to Stephen Hewson, who's also been talking to Valerie Adams as manager, Nick Cowan, about the World and Olympic shot put champions' coaching situation. It's been reported Adams is on the verge of splitting with her Millennium Institute-based coach, Didier Pope, only eight months after she parted company with her long-time mentor, Kirsten Hallier. But Cowan says although there have been differences of opinion between Adams and Pope, it's not just a simple matter of ditching the North Shore-based Frenchman and switching to the Swiss coach Jean-Pierre Egger, with whom she's been also working in Switzerland this year. 
we've conducted a fairly extensive review of last year. Um, that that would be what I call a normal process of what we would go through. Now, and, and what we did with that was we looked at what was good and what was bad last year. One of the factors that was good last year that went very, very well, I mean, there's many things that went well, but one of the things that went very well was she had uh, some time with Jean-Pierre Iga and Werner Gunther up in Switzerland just before she competed in Croatia at the uh, World Cup. Valerie had a very positive experience there and, and found it very beneficial. And she came home and spoke to myself and, and her coaching team, uh, including Didier Pope, and reiterated that it was for, for her she needed to do more of that next year with Jean-Pierre and perhaps over a more sustained period. Now, what's happened from there is that we have conducted a review from there. What's happened from there is that we have, as part of this review, we have looked to see if we could put something together with Jean-Pierre. And I guess what's complicated that is just how the New Zealand structure fits around that. And then obviously what's come out of that is there may be a situation where DDR is no longer in the coaching frame but I need to emphasise that that decision has not been made yet and those discussions are still ongoing. So why does she need to change? I mean, obviously things have gone well for her this year, the distance she's, she's throwing. Is it simply they didn't maybe connect as well as she, Valerie might have hoped for her and Didier? Yeah, look, there is components of that and, and I mean, Didier and, and ourselves have been quite upfront and honest about that uh, in, the, in the last few days. You know, there, there were some points of difference, if you like, that needed to be discussed and worked through. Uh, we, we had a rigorous debate around that. That had led to trying to work out whether it was going to be able to work. And so I guess you could regard that as a component of what's going on. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to whether Valerie can't have two lead technical coaches or two head coaches as such. And then it just comes down to whether we're able to fit. With Jean-Pierre, he would be our desire and, and Didier would endorse that. And then it just comes down to whether we can make that fit as well in and around, in and around the, the components of, of what Valerie and, and Didier have shared with each other in terms of how they see things moving forward. When you say points of difference, can you explain? It's just a normal coach-athlete type thing. You do hear of these types of things Often, uh, you know, in terms of coach-athlete points of differences or, or differences of opinion might be a better way to describe it. And, and it's just a normal process of building a coach-athlete relationship. Probably what's just complicated matters is that we have this opportunity that has gone very, very well with Jean-Pierre, and so that's just made things a little bit more tricky to pull together. Where does the difficulty arise then in, in switching coaches? Is it funding issues? Perhaps just give me a bit, bit more clarity around your question, the difficulty you mean in terms of making the decision or? Yes. Yeah, well I, I guess the situation is, is that what's important to Valerie is not being based in Europe full time. She doesn't want to do that. Having her New Zealand base here is pretty important as well. It's an important component of what she does. So it's really just a matter of being able to have a technical lead overseas that can then be intertwined and mixed with her coaching support back home if that makes sense. So did Didier Pope want to, to do more work in Europe with him? No, look, I, I guess where, where matters are at is Didier has to decide with us 
just whether he can fit into the model that we're trying to create with Jean-Pierre. And, you know, he's part of that decision-making process, but he may want to have more input than perhaps what would be in there if, if we had the European component in there as well. So at what point do you see this handover taking place? Uh, I guess the unfortunate thing is is that we were in the middle of working through these discussions and we were very, very close to finalising things one way or the other. We hadn't made any decisions. So to answer your question, I would hope that we would have matters resolved within the next 10 days to two weeks. I should also say here that Valerie doesn't normally throw in training um, at this time of year. So between mid-October and mid-December, she doesn't normally pick up a shot and throw it. She just normally does conditioning work. So this is having no bearing on her cycle of training at all. That's Valerie Adams' manager, Nick Cowan, talking to Stephen Hewson, and that's the show for this week. Feedback is welcome via sport at radionz.co.nz. You can get the latest sports news anytime on our website. Well, we'll be back with the next web-only Extra Time show next week. I'm Murray Williams. Bye for now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.